0: Welcome to everyone who has joined us today. Just to give you like a quick rundown um, for this morning, um, we are going to have a intro from uh, Gareth Burford at Yoke Recruitment. Um, so he's going to do a quick five minutes just to intro Yoke um, and say hi to you all. Um, and then we will be throwing over to Leah Steele from Searching for Serenity. Um, And she'll be taking you through her slides um, and going through how to deal with burnout. Um, And then we will be going to Anna Denton-Jones and Anna will take us through everything that she's put together for this session. So we're really looking forward to this one. It's been our most popular one so far. So there's loads of um, new people joining us. So welcome to all the new people as well. And um, thank you for taking the time to join us today.
1: So I think James already mentioned it, but for the people who've just joined, we just want to say a really big thank you for everyone taking the time to join today. Um, myself, uh, I'm Gareth Burford, Ops Director of uh, Yoke Recruitment. Um, I oversee the, uh, the, the eight different divisions that we have in our office, which is right through from our office support team, who I can see have also joined us today. Uh, Marketing, IT, our legal team, engineering, public sector, and our finance and accountancy team. Um, so we've all joined today um, because of the topic of managing conflict in a burnout world, and we will be passing over to them shortly. Um, I just want to just kind of put it out there in terms of what we do. Obviously, your recruitment, uh, bread and butter would be in terms of how we recruit and how we support our clients within recruitment. Um, but also just think of us as a, as a, as a, an additional element of support to your business as well. Um, in terms of our clients that we work with, uh, exclusively or non-exclusively, but we support them with not just recruitment matters. We look at also diversity inclusion. Uh, we support them with market knowledge, whether that be sector specific or general over the marketplace. Um, and offer additional advice where we can because we've got different experts within our business as well. So um, although we've got a few more people guest starting, that's kind of the intro where we have at the moment. So I believe I am handing over to Leah. uh, And then Leah, over to you. Um, Thank you very much.
2: Fantastic. Thank you very much, Gareth. Um, Can everybody hear me okay? Give me a thumbs up if you can. Awesome. And I am just, I promise, I know it's the first day back after we've all had a day off. I promise you won't be deaf by PowerPoint, but I'm just going to pop up some slides. Also, because that way I don't have to look at myself, which is a great way to run these things. Um, so can everybody see that cover slide right there? Again, give me a thumbs up if you can. Ooh, I'm just getting some notifications. There we go. OK, so. Imagine conflict in a burnout world um, as Gareth just introduced. Hi, my name is Leah I run Hello, logo at the bottom there searching for serenity um i'm going to be talking to you for hopefully no more than 30 minutes if i'm going over somebody please scream at me and yank my presentation off the screen um but i'm going to talk you through what burnout is i know we're still talking about what burnout is despite the fact that everybody in the world seems to be talking about it and have some kind of input on it but you know we'll go for it so my aims just you know, it's nice to know what I'm holding you for. This is where everybody then starts to come off of the the teams. Um, My aims are that by the end of this session, you will understand what burnout is versus some of the myths that we've all heard, that you'll be able to identify burnout risks and symptoms in yourself and your team, and have some practical tools to start implementing change. And then at that point, I'm going to hand over to Anna, where she's going to talk about the conflict management side of this. So basically, I'm setting the scene. It's burned out. It's like an arid desert. You know, that's... Let's talk about why we care about burnout. Look, everybody has heard something about burnout recently. I'm also going to mention that topic that we've all seen on LinkedIn recently. Why do we care about burnout? I'm going to give you in a minute just a couple of stats, but the reason why I'm the one talking to you about this right now is the easier one to explain. Um, and it might give you a little bit of insight as to why I'm such a fanaticist about this stuff. So my name's Leah Steele. I run this business called Searching for Serenity, and I provide training, mentoring, coaching. Um, I support both private individuals and businesses really to help them become uh, burnout safe, burnout preventative environments, but also to deal with issues like imposter syndrome, stress, resilience, you know, those really small niche, lightweight topics that you know, we never have any problems with. The point for me is that burnout is the peak of Everest. Everything that comes underneath is about sustainability, resilience, It's about making sure that we can do what we want to do for a very long time that's enjoyable, that's sustainable, that's rewarding and frankly where work doesn't feel like a form of self-harm. The reason why I'm the one talking to you about it, my background before I started this business six years ago is that I was a lawyer. Um, I worked in various different law firms in Bristol where I live and in Wales all around the southwest. I specialised in something called contentious probate, which meant I was dealing with people who were recently bereaved and engaged in litigation. And shockingly, I experienced my own issues with burnout. It's difficult to understand why doing that work, I'm sure. Having gone through burnout back in 2013, when we didn't talk about it at all, my Google alerts every single day send me a dozen or more new articles about burnout. But back in 2013, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what the symptoms were. I thought, frankly, I was going crazy or that I was seriously ill and or both Um, and I felt so alone so that's why I talk about this incessantly but also because if we can understand and prevent burnout we can hopefully have less issues less loss of revenue less staff turnover It's, it's just endless okay so the reason why I'm talking to you about it is because I'm mouthy and I talk about burnout a lot. But this is why you should care about burnout. So as I said, I've been doing this for six years. I started developing um, sort of corporate training around 2019. And so when I first started, I found Gallup 2018. They did a survey, U.S. polling service, and they found that 23 percent of workers reported feeling burned out very often or always. And that 44 percent felt burned out sometimes. 67 percent of workers experiencing some level of burnout at one time right what that means is two-thirds of people experiencing some level of burnout. i was really shocked when i read this because i'd been through burnout i thought that everybody else around me was fine it was just me i was the problem like the reddit thread um and actually that's not the case Thirds of people in 2018. Now, this is the US, this is a polling service of around 5,000 employees. They ran it again in 2020, and in March 2020, they found that 28% of workers were feeling burned out very often or always, and 48% felt burned out sometimes. So, we've had a jump of what is that around a fifth feeling burned out very often or always, but we're now up to nearly a third of people feeling burned out very often always, half of people feeling burned out sometimes, that puts us to 76%, three quarters of people. Now, I don't know if you remember, but something happened in March 2020, you know, small, completely precedented, nothing really changing. This data was obviously taken before March 2020, um, in order for them to publish on that date. I can't see that Gallup have done it again since. Their usual process is March Every two years, they release a new version of this poll. And I can't see that they've done that. And I wonder whether it's because they've just given up in the pandemic, because this is before we had remote working, work from home, we had furlough, we had all these things going on. Do you think that symptoms of burnout will have increased or decreased over the last two years? Just have a look at how many people are attending this session and then answer me that one. In 2021 and 2022, Deloitte have done update, updated surveys around this. 77% of professionals have experienced burnout at their current job, according to their 21 survey. 51% of those people have experienced burnout more than once. But what's really interesting is that they still say 87% of professionals say that they still have passion for their current job. 77% of professionals experience some burnout at their current job. 51% of people experiencing it more than once. And 49% of the cost to employers each year, according to Deloitte, is due to presenteeism, which we're going to see in a minute has a huge overlap with burnout. So we're talking about 35 billion each year that is lost by UK employers because of something that could be prevented, presenteeism. So when we're talking about burnout, I told you why you should care about it. Basically, Look around the room. If there are four people in the room and you don't have burnout, the other three do. Um, and if you are in that room and they are struggling with burnout, what impact do you think it's having on you? What impact do you think you, it's having on the organization? What do you think might be going on there? But what do you think burnout looks like? This is where I'm going to have a little rant, okay? Have you ever seen those posts on LinkedIn, on Instagram, where people are like, oh, so burned out. But then I took a day off and had this smoothie and everything was fine again. People who were sharing that did not experience burnout. They experienced a bit of tiredness and they're probably trying to sell you something. One of the problems that we have is that what we think burnout is, doesn't always look like it. So you might think that burnout looks a little something like this. The is on fire, people screaming, throwing their laptops out the window. This is what I thought it was. When I was reading about it, It was, I thought, well, obviously someone who's experiencing burnout, they're not functional anymore, right? They are burning the office down. They are quitting their job. They are signed off on long-term sick. And that is the reality for some people, but not for most of us. Because remember, 77% of people have experienced some level of burnout right now in their current job. We're not all doing this. We would be rioting in the streets if 77% of people were behaving this way. So what is burnout? What is it really? It's actually a lot more subtle and a lot more insidious than you might think. So this is the World Health Organization's definition of burnout. It's so important that WHO got involved, okay? And this is their definition from the ICD-11, which is the International Classification of Diseases, Volume 11, basically the big fat book of all the reasons why you might ever need to see a doctor. But the first thing we need to know about this is this is not a medical diagnosis. It's not like depression or a broken leg it's termed an occupational phenomenon which i cannot say without then humming the muppets tune in my head but it's a reason why you might interact with medical professionals it's not a diagnosis or a a medical treatment in itself so already we've got this kind of cloudiness around it and this is their definition which is drawn from the research of um christina maslack who is the pioneer around burnout They said burnout is a syndrome conceptualised as resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. It's characterised by three dimensions. One, things of energy depletion or exhaustion. Two, increased mental distance from one's job or things of negativism or cynicism related to one's job. And three, reduced professional efficacy. Definition was only published in 2019, again, before the world became unprecedented. They had this lovely disclaimer at the bottom of it that said, when it refers specifically to phenomena in the operational context, it should not be applied to describe experiences in other areas of life. Um, Let's ignore that. I don't know if you've noticed, but work life, they kind of smashed together, had a baby, made everything very complicated the last couple of years. But this definition right here, chronic workplace stress, what does that mean? Chronic, long-term, significant but often overlooked, we notice the acute stressors. We notice when someone comes into the office and starts screaming in your face. We notice when we miss a massive deadline. We don't notice when every day we're going home and there's still more work to do. So my classic is to go into law firms and say, chronic workplace stress, what's it look like? Oh, it's this, it's that. Okay, raise your hand if over the last month, at any point you have successfully cleared all work from your desk, Reactive and proactive, had nothing to do without quitting your job. And of course, I used to be a lawyer. So when I'm sitting in law firms saying that, they all look at me like, has she lost the plot? <laughs> this is not the way what we- it's not the way any of us work. But that right there is chronic workplace stress. We're never quite turning the taps off. These three key dimensions can be summed up really simply with this. Waking up every day, feeling a little bit more tired, feeling like it's more of a struggle and beginning to wonder why you're bothering. When we bring it down to that definition, well, most of us have felt that way recently, right? It's been a stressful decade so far. This is my definition of burnout. I say that burnout is a collection of physical and emotional symptoms that arise from someone who cares about doing a good job, works too hard for too long, with too little care and reward. It happens to the best and brightest to give generously of themselves and ask for too little in return. Does that one hit a little closer in the chest? So we've got these three key dimensions. We've got chronic workplace stress that's not successfully managed. This is where we need to stop again for a moment. That example I gave, you know, I was so tired and I had a day off and I'm fully recovered. That's not burnout because burnout is is a systemic issue. By which I mean, and that's why I've got this little person with all their circles around them. It's all of the systems that we operate in. Our team, our work, our business, our industry, our families, our friends, our culture, our religious background, our political background, all of these things can give rise to stressors, right? They can cause us stress. If you look at a newspaper, if you are overworking, if there isn't a system in place at work to support you, all of these things are going to interact with burnout. Is it the one person in the middle's problem, fault? issue if it all goes wrong no so this is where it gets really complex because we've got this whole organizational structural cultural background with it and then these individual people going but if I just eat enough celery sticks and go to the gym often enough I should be fine right no we have to work with the individual to improve their resiliency where possible but if you're sitting in a glass of hydrochloric acid you're still going to dissolve that's why we've got to resolve the acid as well as where the person's sitting how does burnout progress? I can see the people are already like, oh my God, no, this is awful. We've got five stages to burnout, right? This is a good thing because it means that burnout doesn't just creep up on you one day dramatically. If you know about these five processes, then you can start to manage and reverse it. But the five stages of this, honeymoon. Remember when you first started your career or you started a new job, everything was wonderful. It was rosy, it was beautiful, you had wonderful skin, you slept fantastically. And then there's these first challenges. This is not just like a bad day, it's something that goes to the root, the heart of why you do what you do, or thinking things are fair, you know, big challenges, a boss who gets away with bad behavior, or a case that you really believed in going wrong. Something really that sticks with you for a long time. Then we have this plateau, We know that we're fighting against an environment that isn't always fair, and we're trying to learn and grow and develop our skills. And we're expending a huge amount of energy trying to climb that ladder probably not recovering equally to the amount we're expending. Stage four is the crisis, and this is where most people think burnout lies. You fall sick, you get signed off sick, there is a drama, there's a family problem, and you can't cope with everything that you're holding together, right? For me, it was, I'd started a new job. I was working at the number one firm in Wales, number one team for what I did. I felt massively out of my depth, imposter syndrome out the wazoo. And a weekend, my mum got rushed to hospital with an illness that she eventually died from. Working with, whilst I'm working with the recently bereaved in these multi million pound litigations, you know, that would be enough to break most people. But I kept going. And this is where stage five is habitualized burnout. See, Remember what I said just now, you wake up every day feeling a bit more tired, like it's a bit more of a struggle and you don't know why you're doing it. That's habitualized burnout. And for many people, we'll live in that for years or even decades before we do anything about it. Because who am I to do this stuff? The reason why I put Wiley Coyote on the page isn't just because he's awesome but because he's the definition of somebody in habitualized burnout. Remember when he runs off the cliff, he's chasing Road roadrunner, he runs off the cliff and he keeps going, and then all of a sudden he looks down and realises there's nothing underneath his feet, and that's when he falls. That's what it's like living in habitualised burnout for years or decades. You're still running, you just haven't realised you're going to fall yet. So, this isn't actually a joke. There's no funny punchline to it, but I'm going to talk you through three burned out workers, workers walk into a bar. So we've got three little archetypes to look for because I've told you what burnout is. We talked about how it develops over time, chronic workplace stress. What's it look like when it's showing up in people, right? What does a burned out worker look like? And I've got these three key archetypes that I use, I think might be helpful for you. So from left to right, we've got the firebrand, the ghost and the superhero. It does sound like it should have a funny punchline right the firebrand this is somebody who in their natural state is a good solid worker they've been committed to the organization they've been working there for a while they produce good work they're usually a team player but then all of a sudden things start to change all of a sudden they become loudly angry negative, disengaged. They're the kind of person who slams a file down on the desk, slams a phone down, mutters whilst they're typing, makes everybody around them feel on edge. And then when something happens, they believe that everything their employer does is insert expletive choice here. They are the first to say, this is a rubbish solution. They're the first to say, well, that's not going to help us, is it? They don't necessarily offer solutions. They're just in a state, this is a gross term, but they're in a state of emotional leakage. By which I mean, it's just seeping out everywhere and it's kind of covering everybody, right? Their work might be slipping in quantity and quality, but it's otherwise of a a sufficient standard. You might not be looking at performance management, but they feel like the troublemaker and you don't know where it's come from because they were great before. Second archetype, the ghost. We all know this one. I was talking about this before the LinkedIn thing about quiet quitting, but let's address it for a moment. Okay. The ghost is usually somebody who might be a natural introvert, but can be outgoing. They often can deal with emotions or heavy type work, but they're traditionally an overperformer. that then does the classic quiet quitting. They're trying to put in place healthy boundaries. Their employers are worried they're being lost. Right, so they might have been previously chatty. Remember when we were in first lockdown and we were all doing Zoom pubs, Zoom calls, Zoom drag queen bingo, WhatsApp chats everywhere? But then all of a sudden, this person just disappeared. Done Irish exit from all of it. They don't want to attend work events. They don't want to get more engaged. They're avoiding eye contact, whether that's literal or figurative. Their work is is declining in quality and quantity, but it's not always noticeable because they've been so solid before. And often they're engaged in this ghosting in order to manage their energy, in order to be able to maintain the quality and quantity of their work. Everything else gets narrowed around it. And the third archetype is superhero. Their natural state is they are a total overachiever. They volunteer for everything. They're the one who does the corporate social responsibility stuff. They're the one who brings the best cakes to the bake sale. They're actually really kind of annoying if they wouldn't be so nice all the time. They are overachievers. They get stuff done. They seem to have a huge amount of energy. But then when it goes too far in their burnout state, that person that you notice their energy is just a bit frantic. It's a bit edgy all the time. It feels like they're on the verge of bursting. They overcommit to things, but then they don't know how to say no, because their personal worth is all about their perceived value to others i'm good because i do stuff for people not i'm good and i do stuff for people and they epitomize dig up stupid they're digging and digging they're trying to get themselves through it but they're not necessarily getting very far because they're just digging a hole deeper right these three archetypes are the kind of people that you might look around your office and think oh yeah we've just tipped over from that natural state into burnout or They might have been this way for a really long time. Remember, stage five, habitualized burnout, you can be living in it in decades, particularly if you're the ghost or the superhero, because the ghost is narrowing all of their energy in order to be able to do their work. The superhero gets reward from overachieving. So they're still getting this little bit of a reward cycle, even as it's draining their energy, like they've got some kind of like fatal stab wound. You're going to see this happening with people around you. And I'm really sorry, because once you start seeing it, you can't unsee it. So my apologies. Now, look, a lot of people say that there is a solution to burnout. I have seen people claiming on LinkedIn that flexible working, remote working is the answer to burnout. Do you remember the pandemic? Did it feel like it was the answer to burnout? Because have we solved it yet? If so, why am I still talking about it? Can I go and like sit on the beach instead? Singular solutions to burnout are usually misleading. And actually, flexible remote working has had an impact. Now, it goes both ways. And this is where you're going to get really annoyed with me because what you want me to do is present you a box with a bow and say, here's a solution to burnout. There you go, it's done. But actually, it's a mixed picture. So, for example, remote working can improve productivity, job satisfaction, and commitment, according to Keller and Anderson in 2010. But it can also increase work intensification and effort. So what that means is it takes more effort, which can lead to burnout, and it can intensify because we're not surrounded with the social factors. We don't get to de-stress after we've had a stressful conversation by making eye contact with our colleague over the desk and laughing. We found that remote workers were carrying out nearly twice as much unpaid overtime each week than office workers, even before the pandemic. So if you had remote workers versus office workers, remote workers tended to do a whole day's extra unpaid overtime compared to a half day each week for office workers. And actually, as we went into the early days of the pandemic, this massively increased. 25% went up, saying that we were doing between seven and a half and nine and a half hours of unpaid work each week. Now... I used to work 60 to 80 hour weeks. Again, when I say this to certain industries, particularly lawyers, medical professionals, they kind of laugh. Like, is that all? Is that all I have to do overtime? But that's the average. Those extreme people are pulling it up. But it shows that we're all moving towards this work intensification of overtime, which means we need to have more conversations like this because we're more likely to experience burnout. So our jobs are incredibly and inherently stressful. Do you think we're doomed? Do you feel a little bit like this cat in the bath right now? Because I know I did when I read this and I feel like it most of the time when I write these things. I want you instead to think about burnout as living in your energy overdraft, because that's what it is. Chronic workplace stress that's not been successfully managed is a huge expenditure of energy with very little recovery. So what we want to do, just like getting out of your overdraft when you finished uni and actually got a job and stopped living on student loans and, well, you know, later in my case, moving into the black and out of the red. We have to think about that with our energy, with how we're doing. We can make marginal gains to move us into the black every single day. So where are you on this spectrum? Are you Robin Shabatsky from How I Met Your Mother, sitting under a desk, drinking a bottle of wine and crying at 9 o'clock in the morning? Or are you a dashing on a lilo, floating across a pool with a unicorn in the background? I think we all want to be the puppy on a lilo, right? We all want to move in that direction. So it's what we can do to make those marginal gains to move towards that. What do good burnout prevention strategies look like? Because it's not just about the individual, okay? This is about the individual and the organisation working together. 77% of workers experiencing some level of burnout in their current job right now, okay? So we've got to look at this on a systemic level. And the reason why I've got these two things is here. The one on the right, the weaving, That's prevention. We want to weave burnout prevention through everything that we talk about, everything that we do. We are talking policies and strategies, our culture, our psychological safety. We're talking about it being there all the time, not a one-and-done training, but it being something that we do every day. Because the opposite of burnout is sustainability. I know it's a buzzword at the moment, but we want sustainability, right? And recovery It's like straining tea we want to go through these multiple layers of being caught so it's like straining cheese through a muslin cloth over a colander we want to make sure it's caught at every level that this means that we need a complex multi-strand approach so looking at those archetypes we had how can we identify burnout symptoms earlier looking at what the red flags are the amber flags and the green flags. Green flags mean it's fully sustainable. Amber flags mean we're a bit beyond our limits, and red means we are in trouble, right? This is where people are getting signed off, leaving their jobs, the great resignation. We prevent burnout by looking at this multi-strand approach. We look at it preventative, we look at proactive and reactive. So we're looking at resourcing, not just bombs on seats, but systems, procedures where we can provide alternative support, personal resourcing as well, our personal resources to manage. Strategy and policy, not just a document, but something that we live and breathe. Psychological safety embedded in it. Business continuity planning. Like a lot of businesses have a business continuity plan that is basically, we're just gonna fly by the seat of our pants and keep going. We need to actually look at it and say, Are we running at capacity? Do we know what our capacity is? Do we know what our resources are? What happens if we lose 10% of our staff, 20% of our staff? What happens if our business needs to go up 20%? How will we cope? And sometimes it takes a fresh approach, a wholesale approach, taking a step back, getting fresh eyes on it and saying things differently. Again, remember, singular solutions are not it. So it's not a fruit box. It's not a day off work. And much as I love giving training and I'm available to give training to people, it's more than just a one off training. Okay? We get burnout so wrong because it's a technical term in common parlance. It's not a medical diagnosis. It's still a bit fluffy. It's still a bit. Intangible for a lot of people. That's why I gave you those archetypes to work from. But the other thing to remember is often's window, which is. Basically, the view, it's something that's used in political terms to say how we can change the window of what seems reasonable in the public. So, for example, if I state some really extremist views and then something less extremist, it sounds more reasonable by comparison, even if it's wrong. With burnout, we have gotten so used to over the last couple of years, working through the pandemic, working remotely, flying by the seat of our pants, trying to get it all done, that our set point for what is reasonable has shifted. And we need to shift it back to something more in line with sustainability remember the ghost archetype that plenty of us have been narrowing our lives to cope with work pressures so it has a self-gaslighting effect we're not seeing our friends we're not seeing our family we're not necessarily going on holidays doing the things we used to do and so we just assume i'm not good enough as opposed to this is really tough and nobody should be expected to cope with all of this alone plenty of us also need permission to stop So I'm going to leave this one here. This is a four-step that I use with clients. You can use it on a personal level. You can also use it within an organization. What works? What doesn't work? What are we missing and what do we need? It is not a problem to ask for help with these things. Nobody has a single solution. I'm not saying to you this one-size-fits-all thing is going to make it all great. And if you don't know it, you're stupid. That's just not the case. We know that. It's more complex and more nuanced. We need to keep reflecting. Couple of quick reminders just before I hand over to Anna. Burnout is not the end of the road. We can get into stage five habitualised burnout for years or decades and still reverse it and make it sustainable. It's more difficult the longer we do it, so I'd advocate against it, but it is possible. If some of the points that I've said today hit home, that's okay. It just means you care and give a lot. That's all. There's no judgement here and we need to make sure that we implement structural and personal change. We need to make sure that we have capacity for change, not living in our energy overdrafts all the time. Remember Robin under the desk. So we need to take action as soon as possible. Don't wait until people break, they likely won't. This is one of the big problems with burnout. We wait until people break, and actually what we need to do is be able to say, we need to improve this every step of the way. And I'm going to just, as I hand over to Anna, I'm going to leave you with this question. There are two questions for this session that I picked up on that point to a similar issue. One said, how can employers prevent burnout when we're struggling to recruit? And the other said, how can we break the cycle of too much work and not enough time? What do you think those two questions have in common? And what is it that we can change moving forward? I'll answer it later if we need to, but... What do you think they have in common? What do you think the approach is that we need to change? That's everything from me. I hope that you found that helpful. Anna, are you ready?
3: Yes, thank you, Lee. Lee. Um, obviously, I have a lot of conversations with people, both employees and employers, and anecdotally, I would back up everything that Lee has said 100%. Um, it doesn't seem to matter what industry you know we're talking about i seem to be coming across people who are struggling and it you know it doesn't matter what their job is um it does seem to be you know anecdotally a problem for people um as is conflict um in the workplace Employment tribunals are slightly down on where they were, if you like, at the peak, at the, at the beginning of the, the pandemic. Um, I suspect that might be just reflective of the economic kind of cycle, really, and that if we're going to go into a recession, that obviously we'll see more cases again there. But what I would say I'm seeing more of a grievances Um, and conflict in the workplace. So I wanted to just pick up on that as a theme, not talking about it from a legal perspective, but with more of my kind of mediation hat on, I guess. Um, Number of different reasons as to why fireworks are more likely at the moment. Um, I think Lee has touched on uh, the main one in that we're all pretty tired and battered from the last few years um the pandemic has changed the way that we're working uh, i know my constant refrain that many of you that i've chewed the fat with over recent weeks will know you know volume of email is my big bugbear at the moment um because i think that is making people's jobs unmanageable we've got a cost of living crisis that everybody's um worrying about um We've touched on already hybrid working and challenges with perhaps less human interaction coming from the way that we're working now. Um, Social media mentioned this morning. It was interesting, I found out the other day that the World Economic Forum actually does some sort of risk assessing. They were talking about a decline in human empathy creating division and they've called it you know this age of anger and disconnection and people being isolated so if you think about that as a broad theme that's going on across the world social media I'm sure you can all come up with examples of things that might fit into that category of um, disconnect division lack of harmony and we we're seeing it in workplaces I've had a load of buses come along all at once in the last week around harassment issues and, you know, team and the banter that's going on in the team, whether it's appropriate or not. You know, it's just one example of that perhaps uh, manifesting itself. And um, so I think there are a lot of those drivers going on as to why conflict might be um, increasing. And you'll all be familiar with the risks. Uh, We've mentioned turnover and people quiet quitting and things this morning already. Um, I know lots of employers are struggling with recruitment and uh, retention as as sort of general themes. And obviously, if there is uh, disengagement, then people are much more likely to perhaps leave. I've mentioned grievances already. I always think that when energy is being expended in conflict, that energy is being diverted from somewhere else, isn't it? We constantly talk about the productivity challenge in the UK, that we're not as efficient and effective as we should be and that productivity is going down. And I always wonder whether that's because we are diverting our energy into other things. Um, I'm seeing questions about industrial relations, you know, sorts of questions that I haven't seen for a long, long time coming up um, with employers, discord, if you like, with unions. We've all read about the strikes that are happening in cer- certain sectors Um lots of discussions going on um, there. So, you know, conflict, we know, is not good uh, for us in the workplace. What I wanted to focus on this morning very quickly is some rules I would encourage you use when you're talking with any line manager, for example, about a situation to try and help with calming conflict instead of stoking it. So rule number one, and this might sound a strange thing to say, would be, am I the right person to be having this conversation? Sometimes, particularly if you work in HR, happens to me as well as a lawyer, people want us to do the conversation, don't they? They want to pass it to HR to deal with. And those of you who I know there are a few of your faces I recognize on the screen who are independent HR professionals, you get wheeled in um, quite often to do things that managers don't want to deal with themselves is that the right thing to do or actually do we need to be empowering coaching helping people do their own dealing with things I think sometimes we need to perhaps resist the temptation as HR people to, um, you know, where we want to solve everybody's problems and do everything for them. Sometimes I think we do need to be stronger in pushing back and saying, this is what I can help you with, but you're going to have to um, go ahead and have the conversation so that people don't get out of the habit of having those conversations. I also see it all the time with, I give advice, this is what you need to be doing next, And I'm always talking about, let's have a meeting with the employee, let's have a face-to-face. And then you get the, can I do it by email? Can I use WhatsApp instead? Can I avoid it by using this, that or the other technology? No, 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 We need to get people talking to each other, whether everybody's in the right frame of mind. So you'll all have come across the idea of not sending the email that you may have just written when you're angry and perhaps stepping away from it, coming back to it again on another occasion before you send it. Um, We need to apply the same kind of thinking to um, conversations and um, whether we're in the right place and frame of mind to have that conversation. Um, So in a calm place, when we've prepared for it rather than acting off guard and um, shooting from the hip um is the other person equally in the right frame of mind so sometimes you will get somebody who's demanding attention and you know sending you emails that are quite aggressive or they've picked up the phone and they're you know they're they're wound up and it's about sometimes not reacting to that and saying you're more than happy to have a discussion but now it's not convenient let's do it later or whatever to again give them the opportunity to calm down it's very easy particularly with email when people just fire stuff can be texts as well to respond to that and we get as whipped up into it as them and you know i find myself doing the same as well and sometimes have to restrain myself and say no you know let's not ignore people's communications but we have to find a way of um dealing with it perhaps more appropriately than responding on email and that might be saying come in let's have a face-to-face let's talk about it rather than line by line arguing about the points that they've made um, in an email Um, I had a question before the session about where people are having outside of work um, personal difficulties, uh, to use the phrase in the question, which is then affecting their behaviour in the workplace. And of course, the employer might have zero influence over what's going on outside. I think this is really interesting. We spend a lot of time these days talking about um, bringing our whole selves to work when we talk about diversity and inclusion, um, and when it's convenient for us, when we're you know we're encouraging people to bring their whole selves to work. But then when they do that, we don't like it because they're bringing in outside of work stuff. Um, And absolutely, you're not going to be expected to address, you know, things that are going on outside of the workplace. But there is definitely a blurring. We talked about Lee talked about life and you know, work life. It's all blended together. I think there's more and more recognition of that now, um, and that we're asking people to work in ways that blends everything that's going on in their lives to some extent as employers now we can't just take the that's outside of work attitude um so employers are getting dragged into more looking at the support they can put in place for people as regards the outside of work things that happen to people and i'm thinking about you know the domestic violence, for example, training that we've done this year, or, you know, the employers who are offering counselling services and signposting people perhaps to, you know, um, debt charities when they're talking about cost of living crisis and things like that. Um, employers, in a way, are taking on more responsibilities by, Asking people to bring their whole selves to work. So it is incumbent on employers to not take a, you know, don't bring all this stuff in um, attitude. So what can we do to be supportive? Whilst we might not be able to solve something, what can we um, do to help? And I always think the most powerful question a line manager can ask an employee is what can I do to help? Now, the answer might be nothing, but even asking that question is very important to the person who's heard that
2: be asked.
3: Um, We all dread sometimes dealing with certain people, certain conversations, and we frame in our own minds what we think is going to happen or what that's going to look like when we have it. Can we reframe The mental context for ourselves into a more positive light than the negative one before we do it so instead of thinking oh no I've got to go and do this um difficult probationary review meeting for example can we flip it round into a right I need to give this person some constructive feedback to enable them to be able to pass their probation you've got to admit that once you've made that more positive framing of it it starts to feel like something you want to be involved in and doing rather than something that perhaps you're dreading so it's, it's an important thing to do to reframe and maybe take the heat out of something and um, just by shifting that that focus uh, as well It's interesting uh, seeing all the memes about um, Queen Elizabeth II over the the last week. I'm sure many of you saw the quote where she said that nobody has got the monopoly on wisdom. I thought that was really interesting because if we assume that we can learn something from every conversation and every interaction, then again, we can have a different mindset to approaching that person um, and you know those of you who get involved in disciplinary investigations and grievance investigations and things like that will know you always go into the room you know expecting to be talking to somebody about particular allegations uh, and that something that you believe has happened but it's, invariably you learn that other things have gone on that there's a different slant to things, that maybe there's a reason why something has been happening. And we have to put aside our assumptions and our egos and all of those things um, and be open-minded and listen to people to get the best from um, situations. So let's assume we've got something to learn from what's going on. HR people generally good at this one. Empathy, we're we're the kind of people that are are good at empathy. Um, But quite often I will say to line managers, you know, who are worried about saying the wrong thing, getting criticised, so they shy away from, I don't know, talking about performance management or something, um, because they're worried they're going to get it wrong. I will always say to people in training, okay put yourself in the other person's shoes so if you're being invited to a meeting to talk about performance how are you going to want your manager to talk about it and then they'll tell you well i'd like to know in advance what the meeting's going to be about and i'd like my manager to give me examples of what the concerns are rather than just hit me with a bold statement that what i'm doing isn't right And they'll come up with lots and lots of stuff, which is basically what the employment tribunals will say is necessary for a fair procedure. So instinctively people know what the law is without being told if they can just flip it around and put themselves in the other person's shoes. Um, So that's something, a tool you can use with with line managers. If you know somebody's um, becoming uh, difficult, if you like, in the correspondence that you've been having, um, again, why might that be? Is it because they're not feeling listened to? And, you know, anyone who does mediation in the room will know that one of the most powerful things is feeling listened to. And I think, Often in organisations, we don't do enough listening. We do lots and lots of telling people we don't do enough about listening. Um, So can we, by putting ourselves in the other person's shoes, think, well, we need to give them time to say how they feel from their, um, their perspective and acknowledge it. So when we're having that conversation, it's about those little statements that you make that enable the other person to know that they've been heard so that might be saying you know I understand this is something you're worrying about or this is situation is clearly difficult for you or or whatever it might be and I'm sure we've spoken about this next slide before you know you're seeing just the, the bit of ice floating on the water um, in terms of what you're being told, the way something's manifesting itself um, in work, but of course the majority of the iceberg is actually underwater. So there are all sorts of interests and issues going on in a situation. we might just be seeing that sudden drop off in performance that Lee was talking about earlier, with the um, the first characterization she was talking about, um, floating underneath. You know, we might have health issues. Um, stress is off the scale with people. Like I say, everybody that I speak to is exhibiting signs of of stress at the moment. Um, there's always the history what's gone on um people's feelings that go with that history if people have felt put upon or not listened to in the past then they're bringing all that baggage with them to a situation we learned such a lot in the pandemic about psychological safety and the need for people to feel that you know when I keep looking at the harassment buses that have come along I've had another new one this morning Um, are those are those connected you know are people becoming because we're so much more aware of psychological safety now and perhaps dealing with the generation in work who are more prepared to call out behaviors perhaps and say that something isn't right and then prepared to stand up and, and and be counted about it um our employers going to have to deal with more um of that Um just on the subject of sex harassment while i'm while i'm talking about it um because that is one of the themes of the last week for me um the government is uh, committed to increasing the legislation for employers in that area with a much more sort of positive duty to prevent so employers are going to have to do more than perhaps we've done in the past in that area perhaps that's a, a subject we can pick up um maybe in november if we decide we want to talk about it in in november Um, so we've definitely got i think people at the moment feeling you know we've worked really hard through the pandemic know this is all the stuff we've been through and perhaps you know this is how our employer is now rewarding us in terms of maybe feeling pay rises aren't sufficient this year things like that going on we need to create more collaborative um approach to resolve conflict in the workplace um i think organizations that are really good at managing employees share more information in their organization we're a data-driven world aren't we and more sharing of knowledge and information rather than withholding it can be a good thing Um, it enables people to understand much more what's going on the why behind things is always important, isn't it? It's always important, whatever we're talking about, whatever topic, to explain why in ways that people can understand. Um, talking through different options. People, I think, these days want to feel consulted um, and involved rather than decisions being imposed on them. Um, teams always work better if they're, you know, allocating work and how they do things they're making the decisions rather than being driven from the top down. Steve Jobs was very famous for um, not entertaining managers who came to him with problems, but rather came to him with solutions. And, um, you know, can we build in that kind of um, approach? We've talked about listening And we need to give people better feedback. I am consistently, in fact, Knowledge November for me this year, those of you who get my my, um, mailing list, we're talking about performance because I am just staggered at how bad we are at managing performance in the UK. We don't talk about it until we get to the point that we've lost the plot with people and we want to exit them, and then it's a shock. Because we've never talked about it, we've got to get better at giving and receiving feedback around what people are are doing. And um, when we're talking about managers who perhaps aren't very confident about dealing with um, staff, I would always say to them, you know, don't be afraid to talk to your colleagues, other managers, about what they have done in a similar situation, because everybody faces these challenges with staff. Everybody has that one employee that they really struggle with. Um, not to kind of get people on your side and have some kind of triangulation of you know, the dynamic, but you can always learn from each other. And the same is true. I know I'm in an HR network with a number of people in the room today, um, where we all share experiences and pick each other's brains and that sort of two heads being better than one thing definitely um, rings true. We can script things for people, but we've got to be careful. I don't know if any of you remember when Amy Brand came to talk to the CIPD about the way people's brains function. I always remember her talking about it as if we've got sort of two different wiring systems in the brain um yes prepare yourself have your checklist have your your script your aid memoir that you know I often prepare these things to help people remember what they need to be doing but she described how when you're task focused and you may be trying to tick off the things on the list because your brain is in that Task pathway, what happens is is it switches off the emotional, keeping eye contact, you know, positive body language to the other person type pathways. The bits that might show somebody you were listening and can go up flying out the window so you also need to be talking through with managers how to balance those two things and not be so you know enslaved to their list that they forget to just be a person in the room um and make that eye contact and use that that body language don't let people avoid having the conversation. this is really, really important now we're all working more hybrid patterns. If people aren't confident about having difficult conversations and dealing with conflict, I think people are just going to hide behind even more emails and things. And we all know if we don't nip stuff in the bud early doors, then eventually it does land on my desk. And I would say that I'm seeing more things land on my desk that I think before the pandemic would have just involved a chat (laughs) and that hasn't happened and you can see how it's escalated and I can look over something and I can usually pinpoint you know a a point in the email trail or or whenever where I could say you know if there'd just been an intervention at that point probably none of the rest of this would have happened so let's make sure that people are having those conversations and not avoiding it obviously people need to keep professional i think there is a temptation given the prevalence of whatsapp and um it's using more if you like informal means for people to sometimes forget in their informality that they're stepping perhaps over a line um And people need to remember um, that. Um, I always say to people you know if things are going really badly and people are losing their temper then there is absolutely nothing wrong with adjourning a meeting and saying that you know we'll all go off and have a cup of tea and then come back later when everybody's calmed down. Um, If there is problematic Behavior, I think it's focused on what the problematic behavior is rather than making it personal about the person. So, this would be saying, um, you know, perhaps to a trade union representative, you know, you're shouting at me. <laughs> I'm not prepared to be shouted at. So, we will come back and we will have this conversation when you're not shouting at me. And um, confidentiality is always a challenge, I think. People don't necessarily understand when they are raising complaints what it needs. We're so used to, in HR, aren't we, as to what, what we're doing. We forget to explain to people who aren't involved in these things on a day-to-day basis um, that because you've raised something, you know, we are going to have to look into it. That is going to involve speaking to witnesses, for example, um, and at some point there may be you know statements that are used then in a disciplinary circumstance against somebody for example and um, you know i time and again i see witness statements where that has not been explained to anybody so we need to make sure that we do um we do explain to people um, and i think it's about supporting our line managers to be confident in in doing these things and um, i know certainly i've got a member of my family who is uh, a manager whose attitude is that if she hasn't got three grievances against her at any one time then she's clearly not doing her job properly because she recognizes that sometimes to change things in an organization and to do the things that she's tasked with doing um you are going to perhaps upset a few people along the way. Not everybody is going to be happy with the decisions that have been made. Um, I always tell managers to um, remember that probably they're coming across more confidently in a situation than they than they uh, perhaps feel inside um, as well. There is um some further. Reading in the ACAS, the ACAS have got some guidance around managing challenging conversations specifically and how to manage them if anybody is interested in that. Um, but let's open the open the floor to uh, questions because this is always the interesting part of the session. Whether you've got a question for me or if you've got a question for Lee. Um, and please jump in.
2: I'm just going to show you the entire page of notes that I've written whilst I've been listening to Anna.
0: <laughs> um, I've got a question just in the chat box. Anna, yes. So I can just read that out. It came from uh, Sherry. Um, she mentioned earlier um, a comment about burnout is also what happens to people on the sharp end of discrimination um, in the workplace. Um, and then just a follow up question to that. Um, Sherry said, please can you share how the person on the sharp end of discrimination can address the conflict if the perpetrators um, who are in the leadership to deny these issues.
3: So I think I'm gonna to have to go to the chat so I can see.
0: No Just so um... yeah, I mean I think it is difficult for
3: individuals um who have examples of discrimination if the organization that they're working in doesn't recognize that Um, for example I've just raised an appeal in a situation where I think for an employee where I think the organization has kind of taken a bit of a Yeah, there's obviously been something going on, but it's not that serious and we'll just sweep it all under the carpet and we'll get everybody back to work and we'll all move forward without any real recognition from them as to the damage that that's done, not only to the individual whose mental health is now not in a great place as a result of sort of long-term issues in the workplace, um, but also I think not taking a, a step back from the individuals involved um approach and thought about it more broadly when i say that what i mean is you might have an individual you know a saying b said this to me we can all talk about whether there's ever whether there's any evidence in relation to that and obviously it's difficult often for employers because evidence is you know what you need to be able to do something but you've also got to step back as an organization as well and think about culture haven't you and messages that are sent in the workplace and if we've got policies and procedures that say we do not tolerate harassment for example um we've got a zero tolerance approach if then when we are faced with complaints of those very things we are not seen to take it seriously and do something about it that whole not just having the policy you know propping up the the wonky leg on the table but actually living it in the organization you've got to think about all those issues haven't you and the messages that are then sent to other people not only in a particular scenario perhaps you know getting the wrong idea about what is culturally accepted here, but you know are other people looking in, um, taking their lead copycat behavior, all of those sorts of issues. So it is complicated, and organizations do need to think about all those things. and I think often don't. Um, and often I think it comes down to politics. It comes down to who's being accused. And if they're successful, popular, um, you know, heavy hitters, if they're, I don't know, sales. You know, not wanting to have to lose people who are good people. If you've used grievances, if you've used the appeal mechanisms, if those things aren't working, that's when people feel that they have to bring a claim. Um, and that's the only way it's going to get heard. Um I wouldn't necessarily recommend to anybody that they go to litigation, even though I'm a litigator, because of the costs, not only financially, but emotionally of doing it. Um, Practical reality is people move on, don't they? They move to another, another place where they are gonna feel secure. Any other questions?
4: Yeah we've got um, a bunch of questions from the sign up. So one of those questions was um how do we self diagnose burnout? So if somebody thinks that they are burnt out, how how would they um how would they know how how would they get to a point where they can say Activ- actively yes I am burnt out or how would you convince somebody that maybe they are burnt out that don't feel like they have a problem?
2: Mm-hmm. It's yeah. such it's such a tricky one um, because, as I said earlier, we're not talking about a medical diagnosis. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have diagnostic tools. So um, Robin knows that I've developed something for people. that's quick. It, it's not a diagnosis. It's not a diagnostic tool, but it can help you look at some of the issues around burnout and determine whether you're experiencing a high level of burnout, where your resiliency factors are what I've built is based on something called the Oldenburg scale, which has been used recently by Law Care for Lawyers. Um, They did a survey of lawyers. They used this tool to determine how stressed lawyers were and the average lawyer is at high risk of burnout, which is obviously wonderful to hear. Um, But there are diagnostic tools out there. The most important thing for me is how are you feeling? It's really easy to sweep burnout symptoms and feelings up in other things i must be depressed i must you know my own process was i must be depressed i must need to change my diet i must need to go to the gym more i must need to do X, Y. and we're all looking for simple solutions and not necessarily taking that step back and looking at overall so we need to look at overall where is my energy how engaged am i how difficult does it feel to do things that used to be okay a year or two years or five years ago That's usually the symptom um, that creeps up on people most. When it comes to discussing this with other people, Mm -hmm. again, this can be really tricky. Mm -hmm. I recently delivered training to a, um, a large organization and very first session that we did, the very first question that came out was, how do you persuade your manager that it's okay to attend a training about burnout when they said I was too busy. And I just sat there with my head in my hands and screamed a little bit Um, because that's what we're dealing with. We are, as Anna said just now, we are in this space at the moment where there's a lot of cultural conflict. There's a lot of intergenerational conflict. We are changing the way that we do work, the way that we show up. That's going to have ructions. And burnout is one of them. There are some people who think burnout is only for sissy snowflakes. Um, You know, that we are the new what's it called in the 80s and 90s, um, when people couldn't cope, you know, Snowflakes is a new version. Um, but actually, it's not the case. So first of all, trainings like this help, um, because if somebody doesn't believe that you have burnout, they may understand the cultural impact of burnout, they might understand it on the bottom line, which is an idea. Um, Yuppie flu, that's it. Yes, thank you guys. <laughs> that was exactly what I was talking about. People used to talk about yuppie flu, and that's an illness, but we used to just diminish people if they didn't fit the status quo, right? This is what we talked about earlier with microaggressions. So, we need to talk about it more. We need to have more education out there. We need to have more understanding. We need to see the different implications for it. And then All my phrases, we can lead a horse to water, but sadly, we're still not allowed to waterboard it. So we will lead the horse to water, but we can't make them drink it. We can't shove them in face first. We've just got to keep trying. And that is where discussions like this are so important so that we know where we stand, even if other people around us don't get it. They don't. They're not there yet. Fine. But let's have some support
0: outside of that situation as well. What do you think, Anna?
3: the elephant the elephant I think we've discussed this if not in this uh group of people but certainly CIP deals we've had discussions throughout the pandemic and things around it's work you know workloads I am talking to people on a daily basis who are telling me that they are now doing the equivalent of three people's jobs five people's jobs however many people's jobs you know and if the way that we're all working has changed. So we're all having to digest so many more messages. Mm-hmm. Organizations have got to start looking at job design, haven't they? At some point. Either either we burn everyone up and we spit chew them up and we spit them out. And there are law firms that work on that kind of model. Get them <coughs> in, here, you know, process them for a couple of years. We know they're not going to stay with us long term, but we'll have, you know, we'll have got the work out of them in the meantime fine or we can start looking at job design now that's not my area you know it's not what i've trained in whoever is trained in that area could make an absolute killing in the next decade surely
2: that's one of the things that i i talk about a lot job design resourcing i you know not specifically as a expertise but as part of the conversation around burnout when was the last time any of us, not me, because I'm self-employed, but when was the last time any of us looked at our job description and saw if it actually matched up with what we were doing on a day-to-day basis? If it's gone too far, we need to talk about cultural drift and how we're not reviewing. And guess what? That's a great time to do it right now, because we've just come off the back of a pandemic. Of course, none of us have been looking at this. No blame, no shame. Let's just throw it out there and have a discussion. Um, and that's Psychological Safety 101 right there, right? Yes.
3: Yeah. Absolutely. Were there any other questions Robin?
4: There are are indeed, so um, a question we had which I think is quite interesting is about um, how conflict is sometimes caused by personal issues not actually anything work related, so in the sense of people who might be struggling with that cost of living crisis, you know there's the fallout of the pandemic, everyone's on a little bit more, a bit more stress than they usually would be um, so how do you ma- how do you manage it when the stresses are external from work
3: I think this goes back to what I was trying to say in, in my session that I don't think employers can anymore say that's outside of work nothing to do with us does it impact on work because it is it you know if people are bringing that concern into work they're underperforming because they're worrying about something outside of work or they're not sleeping at night because of something that's happening outside of work. It is affecting work. So we do have to start looking at what we can do to support those people with those issues. We can't be a magic wand and HR can't be responsible for everything, but we can't take a kind of, you know, old fashioned you know, leave it, leave it at your
2: locker when you arrive in work. Yeah. What what do you think, yeah. Lee? Uh, I completely agree. You know, we want people to have to be multifaceted, to have this whole person approach at work. Then you bring the whole person. If you want someone to do a job, great. Just get them to do a job and allow them to go at the end of their working hours no matter how much work they've still got to do. And that's it. Um, If we want whole self, if we want career vocation, then we have to address that directly. Um, And honestly, for most employers, it's it's a bit of a no brainer because it brings so many more benefits. Yes, it's complex. People are. Unfortunately, that's what we signed up for when we decided to work with other humans. Um, but bringing a whole person to work and having them fully supported and working at their best capacity is so worth it. Um, and so this is where, you know, smart employers are looking at, like you said earlier, you know, pointing at um, signposting to debt recovery services, offering counselling and what helplines as part of their package for EAP. Um, discussions that I'm having with employees at the moment are around actually having a team coach and having one-to-one support is something that I'm offering for firms as well. You know, these innovative solutions that basically are about just sweeping people up and supporting them where they are, not requiring them to just give of themselves uh, in an unended fashion, but, you know, we just pay your salary and your, your working hours and your tea and coffee. That's it. Thanks. So, you know, I personally, I think it's a no brainer. The value of it is just phenomenal.
4: So a question from me personally. So <laughs> um, currently the, the whole thing is about, you know, quiet quitting and that's the big buzzword going on at the moment. But before that was the great resignation. And we found, you know, people were just quitting their jobs or, You know jumping ship and we found ourselves in a bit of a candidate-led market because of that reason now do you think that the great resignation was to do with burnout or do you think it was to do with something else
2: so I think it was a combination of factors I think for a lot of people they stuck for longer than they would have done perhaps or in situations that they wouldn't have stuck in because life was so uncertain um, you know, usually I'm I'm thinking of Wiley Coyote again as I'm talking about this, you know, there is so far that we go before we leap. And dealing with a pandemic, flexible working, people being furloughed, there were so many variables that we needed some constancy, some consistency. And people then got to a point where they'd compromised <laughs> too far. So I think actually what we saw with the so-called great resignation was people that had stayed long beyond their capacity to stay there for whatever reason were then finally making the leap. It was it was like a concertina effect, right? We'd all been expanded and we just switched back together. When we're talking about quiet quitting, when we're talking about the great resignation, I think we're talking about something deeper, which is we're no longer prepared to bring our whole selves to work, to dedicate ourselves to a cause and just receive a paycheck for it. We want that reciprocity. We're in the middle of this cultural change, I think. Um, you know, and Anna and I have discussed this separately about having more meaning to work about, doing what is important for you, making sure that it's sustainable and it's rewarding for the long-term. We're looking at this rebalancing up and sure, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be painful for some people, but long-term, more people than ever are looking for, I think, sustainability, for what's going to work for them. and for reward and reward isn't just financial reward is very little of it is financial um and so i think that's what we're seeing actually is we're bringing more meaning to work we've shifted from a clock in clock out mentality you know i talk about burnout my grandparents in their 90s don't know what the hell i'm talking about because they went and well my granddad went and did his job and he left at the end of the day and that was it we've shifted the world of work so much the last 40 years and now we're catching up
4: your thoughts anna
2: um
3: I think there's that I completely agree with everything that Lee just said. I think money is starting to be a big driver. Um I've had a number of conversations with employers in the last week where they're losing staff they literally cannot match the pay that perhaps a competitor is matching. And for example, I know law firms in London are offering junior lawyers in the regions, you know the numbers that they get in London, but yet you can still work from Cardiff, Bristol, wherever. So um, employers are facing that challenge as well, where if you can't compete on money, um, what can we compete on? And that's where those who are looking at the working culture and issues like burnout and are offering something different i think will win out um i'm seeing people i think because they're so worried about the financial situation making interesting decisions for themselves on a personal level so i'll give you an example um somebody who had the benefit of flexibility and you know nice sort of working environment not putting sufficient value on those things and going for the bigger salary even though everybody looking at it would go yeah but you know that organization that you're going to they're going to want their pound of flesh and you're not going to be able to go and pick your children up from school because you are going to be you know shackled to your desk I think people are are perhaps not making the best decisions because they are being driven by money and whether we see People going places and then wanting to come back or, you know, shift again quickly because they realize the mistake they've made when they get there. (laughs) It's going to be it's going to be interesting.
2: I think it's very similar to the thing that I've had with corporate burnout training that money, we can see it, we can hold it, we can dive into it like Scrooge McDuck. But it's the intangibles that we struggle with. We struggle to really understand their value, their meaning until we lose them. So flexibility, flexible working, hybrid working, is all so new. We've not necessarily established the value it has in our lives yet. And it's only when we lose it, we realize how important it was to us. If it would be easy to just weigh it up in a monetary value, it would be brilliant. But instead, we've got to have this kind of suck it and see test, which sucks, literally. Um, because we have to wait for things to go wrong to realize what we had, and then to try and improve it. But yeah I see a lot of people there's a lot of fear-based decision making going on um and just one takeaway for everybody here the closer you are to a stressor in time and place the less likely you are to make a good decision and the more risky a gamble you're going to make there's huge research for that um which is terrifying for every litigation lawyer because that's what you do all day um but if you can try and remove yourself time and space from what's causing you stress to make a more informed decision give yourself that opportunity to let stress to task latency do its job
3: yeah I mean I regularly will say to people that I won't take instructions from them so individuals who are going through a period of high stress I will quite often suggest that they spend a couple of days thinking about a discussion that we've just had before they tell me their answer. Um, I've certainly sent somebody home in the last uh, few days to go away and think about the options that we talked about before they tell me how they feel. With the instruction, you know, you need to feel the same way for a number of days in a row before we know that's really what you think about it rather than being on the emotional roller coaster yeah um and yeah you know, that may be something that if you're in hr you can bring into your practice so i'm thinking you know of a situation this week where somebody has kind of resigned maybe in haste um you know do you jump on that resignation and accept it or do you send that person away with a is this what you really want let's think about it let's talk about it first uh those kind of those kind of things yeah
2: yeah yeah absolutely <laughs>
3: but interesting times interesting times um, In and we've truth. Run, run, run over, run over considerably. And um, the next session, if you want to put the dates in your diaries, folks, is going to be the twenty-second of November. Topic is to be decided. So, please when James asks you for feedback and ideas, if there is something you'd like us to organise, and indeed, if there is a particular guest speaker. That you'd like us to organize them please do uh, let us know because uh, there's an awful lot more of you on this um, call than James and I so best heads together we'll come up with a with a really good idea
0: yeah definitely and i we've we've had other topics through in the past that have informed on future webinars as well so we've definitely go through everything and and they do help us plan the next session so please do um uh, the feedback form when we send it out um, and thank you to both of you and uh, that was very very insightful and really thought-provoking i can see all these messages popping up on the chat box which, uh, be saying exactly that so um yeah thank you both that was great Pleasure. um and as anna said the next one will be november the 22nd so um, we'll be in touch with the usual materials and the slides um, and the recording and the write-up um just please bear with us and thank you to all of you for joining us as well Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Bye.